reading a book called Christ-Centered Preaching by a guy named Brian Chappell. And he is the president of Covenant Seminary. And in this book, he really challenges preachers to preach, which I would say preachers need to be challenged, you know? And in the book, he's, he's quoting several different people as he writes. And one of the things that he quotes is the second Helvetic confession. One of the confessions that was adopted during the 1500s, during the Protestant Reformation. And it was one of the confessions that many of the churches had adopted. And then this confession, it states that when we preach the word of God, it is the word of God. Now that sounds... When we preach the word of God, it is the word of God. What does that mean? Well, what he's saying, and what that confession is saying, is that when a preacher stands up and he preaches the word of God, he is speaking the words of God. Now, as I say that, I want you to understand something very, very important. I don't stand here and say that in arrogance. I don't stand here before you and say that with any sense of pride. I want to tell you how I stand here and say that before you. As I have been meditating on those words and thinking about this in light of the gospel in Scripture and the calling that God has given myself and Mark and our other elders to be preachers of the Word of God, I'm humbled. Because what I realize more and more every single day is I have nothing clever to give you. I have no fascinating story to wow your mind. There is nothing that I am going to say in and of myself that is going to change anything about you. It is the Word of God. That's what it is. And so tonight, my heart and my hope in every time that Mark preaches, his heart and his hope is that you will not see me You will not see Mark, but you will see and you will hear the word of God afresh. And it will get you jacked up because it's that good. At a conference I was at, I wasn't here last Wednesday because I was at a conference. And John Piper said this. Anybody like John Piper in here? He says, Jesus spits lukewarm preachers out of his mouth. That's hard, but I think it's true. And, and as he says, there's so many, I think, preachers that are hovering over and around the Word of God as they fascinate people with stories and as they use quick gimmicks to be able to, to make something seem fascinating when there's not very many preachers that are in the Word of God preaching God's words. Tonight, I want to be in the Word of God. That's our heart's. So I'm going to pray that God will help me to do that. And I want to ask you to pray during the message, during this time, that God would help me to be able to speak his words for you so that you may hear them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are here tonight because you've called us here. Father, I am here in this pulpit tonight, not because I've asked to be, but you've called me to be. And it is great, with great fear and great trembling that I stand here right now because I know that I've been given a big charge 
That's to preach the word of God. To speak your words over this body of people. So I ask you to help me right now. Father, I also stand here with great joy and with great excitement because I could not ask for any greater joy than to be able to know you as Savior of my life and to be able to tell other people about you. God, give us that joy tonight. And as we open up your words, Father, would you help us to hear you speak tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Turn with me there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. We are going to do all of one verse tonight. Isn't that exciting? One verse. Moving along at that pace, we will never finish, right? We won't always just do one verse. Next week, we're actually going to do two verses. I'm going to be preaching next week. You're going to be stuck with me. Apologize about that. We're going to have a lot of fun here this week and the next week as we look at three verses from 1 John chapter 3. So let's start here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. As we start, I want to do something. I want to take us back for a moment to where we were at last week. Because if we don't understand the overarching theme that Mark taught last week, it is a huge, has huge implications on what we're going to be talking about today. And actually, from verses 28 of chapter 2 all the way to verse 10 of chapter 3, it's really the overarching theme that John is continuing to affirm the church in. As he writes this letter to Asia Minor, and as he is expressing these words, this is what he's writing about. Look with me back in verse 29. If you know... That he is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Last week, Mark talked about this thing called regeneration. And what regeneration is. I'm going to read a definition to you and we're going to put this up on the screen in case you want to write this down. But regeneration is or being born again, is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. And so as we move forward here, what I believe that John is doing from verses 1 to verse 3 is that he takes a pause, similar to how we saw him do in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. If you remember that passage, he talked about the little children, and then he talked about the fathers, and he talked about the young men. And what he was doing was he was taking time to affirm the church in the teaching that they were followers of God. And right now, that's exactly what I believe that John is doing again. He makes the statement that they are born of him if they practice righteousness. And now he takes from verse 1 to verse 3, and it's like he goes on a meditating rant. He gets really excited about being born of God. And so everything that we're going to look at in many ways is going to point back to regeneration, being born of God. Now, why would John care so much about this theology? Well, if you remember, as he writes to the Church of Asia Minor, he's battling this idea of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, what it, what it was, was it was when there was a, a false teaching going on where people believed that knowledge was the means by which they would attain salvation. 
that somehow you would get to the point where you were enlightened, and when that enlightening would come, salvation would come by knowledge. Friends, that is false theology. It's not true. So what John is speaking about as he talks about regeneration is he says that salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of your knowledge. Salvation for a Christian is when you, you profess your sins before a holy, righteous God. And in faith, you believe that he has the power through the righteousness of Christ to forgive you of your sins and you follow him. It's not an act of yourself. It's an act of God imparting new birth to you. So he's battling. He continues to write. So let's look at this passage. Again, remembering verses 1 to 3, meditating about being born of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now what we're going to do here in the beginning is we're going to do a little bit of language work. All right. Now, if you're like me, and I'm just going to be honest, this is the, the part where you may have a temptation to check out a little bit, okay? But I promise you, stick with me here for a moment, and as we get through a few of these words, we're going to look at three different Greek words. And as we look at them, what we're going to see at the end of all this as we put the sentence together, it's going to have huge implications for the next part of this passage. So if you stay with me as I try to struggle through this, I think it's going to be beautiful at the end. So stick with me here as we look at these words. First, the Greek word for see is idete. Now, in the NIV, if you're using the NIV, many of you that have been here for a while will remember that we were using the NIV and then we switched over to the ESV. We switched to the ESV because we believed that it was a more accurate translation of uh, the language during the time that scripture was written. And so that's the version that we have been using. If you are using the NIV, this is what your translation will say. How great is the love. Now there's some naughty Christians that call the NIV the nearly inspired version. I'll confess, I've said it before. Some of you may have too. When the NIV translate that passage, how great is the love. It's not that God's love is not great, but that is a bad translation of this word. The literal translation should be edete, see, look, behold, examine. John is calling us in here right now in the beginning of this passage because he wants us to see something. He wants us to behold what he's about to say. So church, as the word of God goes out, written by John, look at what he's saying. See this. Next word. The Greek word for what kind is patepain. It's the adjective that's modifying the noun agape. Love. Now, this word occurs seven different times in Scripture. And every single time that it's used, it has the meaning of astonishment. There's one time that it is used, and it's probably one of the best examples that I could give to you right now. 
When Jesus is walking with the disciples and they're looking at the temple, as they're marveling at the big stones, they say, what marvelous stones! So they are astonished. But there is another meaning for this word. I think that the ESV gets it right when it says, what kind? And I am not a, a scholar by any means. I'm going to show you guys. There is, if, you're, if you have a pen and you want to write this down, go to Blue Letter Bible, blb.com, and you can put in a passage and you can do a search in the Greek just like I have done. These resources are there for you too. But check this out. Pate pain in the original usage of this word had another meaning. And I think it's a meaning that John is also implying here. It was actually the first meaning of the word. And it's not used here in the ESV, but I think it has, again, some significance. Pate pain, in the original meaning, was of what country, or of what nation, or of what tribe. We're going to tuck that down for just a second. We're going to finish the last one and then we're going to put it all together. But keep that in your mind. Of what country, of what nation? Check out this one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This last word, given to. Greek word, didokin. It is a verb. And then this one. I was just dissing on the NIV a minute ago because I called it the nearly inspired version. But this time I think the NIV gets it right. If you look here, the NIV translates this word lavish. I don't think that the, the ESV is, is wrong, but I think that the word lavish is a beautiful descriptive word that captures what John is saying here. The word lavish, if you think about this word, if you've ever used this word, it's, it's a very eccentric word, isn't it? Like it's, it's an overwhelming word. It's like a, you get in your mind a pouring out of. So we're going to go in the sentence that we're about to make. We're going to go with the word lavish. Okay? So we're going to put this all together. And again, if, if you're writing, write this sentence down. We'll put it up on the screen for you. But looking at all the words that we just went and looked back in the, into the Greek, putting them together, this is the sentence that we come up with. See, look, examine, behold. Remember that word from another country or another nation? The unearthly love, the out-of-this-world love that the Father has lavished on us. Exclamation points everywhere, you know? Do you see? Are you looking? Are you beholding this out of the world, of another country, of another nation, of another tribe? Love that the Father is eccentrically pouring out in abundance. That's the love of my King. And that is the type of love that he's talking about here, I believe. Now, I think that there is a great problem with cultural Christianity today. Because when we don't see our world through the lenses and in the light of the gospel, 
when we don't see the world through the lenses of the gospel in understanding that we have a sovereign God who is pouring out an unearthly type of love for us, then we miss it. I was at my parents' house recently, and my parents are so cool because they kept like all of my old books and my old toys from when I was a little kid. And so when I go over there with my kids now, I get to start reading the books that I used to read when I was a little boy. And it like conjures up all these memories that I have of the stories that I used to love. And I was reading one of those stories this last time I was there. It's called Rupert the Rhino. Anybody ever heard of it? Didn't think so. So Rupert the Rhino is this rhino. He, he lives in Africa where most rhinos live. And he has this problem. Really, he, he's supposed to be a nice rhino, but he's always charging into people, into animals, all of the time. So then, Rupert gets caught, and he gets put on a boat. Well, he breaks free in the boat, he charges the sailors, he goes off the boat, then he gets washed up onto, soar, onto shore, and he finds himself in a big city. Well, there's a parade going through the city, and then Rupert begins to charge the people in the parade. He even charges the mayor. And after he charges him, he gets injured. And so he ends up in the hospital. A people hospital, believe it or not. And as he's in the hospital, he's got a doctor that's taking care of him. And in the you know, picture, you see he's got a big bandage on his horn thing. I don't know what that's called. And then he gets an eye test while he's there at the doctor, which all rhinos have to get eye tests. And after he gets this eye test, what the doctor finds out is that Rupert is not a mean rhinoceros at all. He's a very nice rhinoceros. The problem always was that he had bad eyes. He couldn't see. Everything was fuzzy. And so when he was in the jungle, when he was on the boat, when he was at the parade in the city, it wasn't that he wanted to charge people. It was that he was out of focus. He couldn't see. So then he gets glasses, and all of a sudden he begins to see things for what they really are. And then he begins to learn how to interact with the objects, the people, the life and experiences that are around him. Church. Isn't it beautiful, beautiful how even children's stories can breathe so much truth to us? I would argue that many cultural Christians do not see life and experience through the lens of the gospel because they are not spending time meditating on the unearthly love that God is lavishing upon us. And because of that, we walk into our workplace, and there's a person there that has been getting on our nerves, and they don't dress the way that we think that they should dress, and they don't take baths as frequently as we would like them to, and it always seems like they're kind of encroaching on our space. They're one of those people that gets right up in your face when they talk to you, like somebody else that I know and I love a lot. Mark Sigma. <laughs> and as they do this, like, you just get frustrated. 
So you're, you're talking about them behind their back, and, and you just never even want to see them. You never want to interact with them. And the reason that you treat them that way is because day by day, you're not seeing them through the lenses of the gospel. That there is a God that loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you, and he calls you to love other people that way. Are you preaching yourself the gospel every day? Do you remind yourself that you are no better than that person? You are a depraved, helpless person in need of the love of Jesus, just like them. If you would preach yourself that gospel and you would see them through the lenses of that gospel, I believe that you could love them. But the problem is you don't. Because we're not looking at people through the love of God that he's given to us. Or maybe it's your children. Oftentimes you go home from a hard day's work and you look at your children instead of seeing an opportunity like Mark talked about to pour into them and to train them. You see them as a hindrance. You don't see them as a legacy of your faith, but you see them as something that's just getting in your way and causing you inconvenience. So you don't pour into them and you don't spend time with them. You look at your wife and she just becomes an object for your satisfaction instead of seeing her as a daughter of the king that you've been called to love with the word of God. It's because maybe we're not seeing people through the lenses of the gospel. We're not being reminded of, of God's incredible love for us. I think one of the most tragic places that this happens is we open up the word and we charge through it, beat it on our head, we look at the stories, just read them through quick. But because we don't look at the stories through the lenses of Jesus Christ and the love that he lavishes on us by dying for our sins for the glory of God on the cross, we just read them as disconnected stories that don't have any application for our life instead of reading every story as pointing to Christ and what he's done for us. We don't see things through the lenses of the gospel. And I believe that John here, as he affirms us, wants us to see life and experience through this picture. Look at the beauty of being called a child of God, of being born again. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't work for it. And because of that, I get to rejoice in his sovereignty and his love for me, and I express it to a whole world around me in all places and all times. That's what it looks like to, to be lavished in the gospel and to see it. So let me share the second part of the verse with you. Verse 1b that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Let me connect these verses here for you real quick. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. So here's a question tonight, as we've just finished that first part of the verse. What kind of of unearthly love is God 
lavishing upon us, upon John, as he writes this epistle to the church of Asia Minor, who is having the love lavished upon them as well, and upon you and I as followers of Christ, as we read this right now. What kind of love is he lavishing upon us to call us the children of God? You see, when you are born of God, you are a child of God. And so I think that we need to take a moment and we need to try to understand what it means to be children of God. In order to do that, I want you guys to look with me at John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Check this out. It's up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And look at this second part here as it defines what it is to be a child of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be a child of God has nothing to do with being born of a certain blood. It is not because of the will of your flesh, and it is not because of the will of man. Let me interpret it for you another way. It doesn't matter that your great-grandpa was an Assemblies of God preacher. Okay? I mean, praise God for that, but that's not why you're saved. It doesn't matter that your mother may have taken you to Mass every single week. That's good, but that doesn't give you the right to be born of God, to call yourself a Christian. That prayer that you prayed when you were a freshman in high school, when you were at that youth camp, that is not what gave you the right to be saved. You didn't cause your spiritual rebirth in that moment. You didn't do it. What it means in this passage, if you look there at the end, to be born of God, to be a child of God, means this. If you look there in the beginning, if you believed in His name and He gave you the right to become the children of God, it was because of the will of God. If you go back to that definition of what regeneration was, it's a secret act of God in which He imparts spiritual rebirth to us. You know what that means? It means that you are there passively. You're doing nothing. Maybe you were in a church service. Maybe you were praying with your mom. I don't know whatever it was. But you were passive in what God does through a secret act. It's a miracle. It's through His power. He gives you a new heart. And through that act of regeneration, through that act of rebirth, it causes you to be a child of God. You didn't do it. To look at a prophet named Ezekiel who talks about this, who speaks of it as he foreshadows to Christ. Look at this passage, and hopefully this will help. Verse 26, and the chapter here is 36. 36, 26, and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will put within you 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to obey and to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the picture that I get when I think about the act of being born of God or being born again. It's like we're lying on an operating table. And let's be clear, as you're lying on an operating table, like you're completely knocked out, you're not doing a whole lot, are you? You're hoping that the doctor's good, right? And it's like God comes in. You're lying on an operating table. God takes your heart of stone and he removes it. A heart that was disobedient to God. A heart that did not desire God. A heart that was depraved. A heart that was rebellious. A heart that only wanted to serve yourself. And as you're lying there on that operating table, as God does open heart surgery, He takes you, He cuts you open with the Word. He goes in and He takes that heart of stone and He pulls it out. And then he puts in a new heart. It says a heart of flesh. A heart that is receptive to God. And a heart that wants to worship God. That's the picture of rebirth. An act of God. No blood. No will. No flesh. Not of yourself. But of God. Now, what is it that God puts in our hearts in this rebirth that causes us to know Him? What do we know whenever we've been born of God? 1 Peter, check out this passage with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And what I want to do here is I want us to See, examine, put into view the love, the unearthly kind of love that God is lavishing on us as we look at this passage. Follow me here. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, you had a heart of sin. It was given to you by your father, from their father, from their father, all the way back to Adam. You had sin from the moment of birth. You were depraved. That was the heart that you inherited. But you were ransomed from your futile ways. You know what it means to be ransomed? When somebody comes and they lay down something for you so that you can be taken out of slavery. You had a heart that was in bondage to slavery. And this is what happens. It was ransomed. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold. God didn't write a check. He didn't bring a money bag. That's not how he pulled you out. How did he do it? Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Church. God paid your ransom with the blood of his son. Lavishing. Like that of the lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He existed in all times. He's always been. He'll always be. He was there in the beginning of the world. He'll be there in the end. He knew about you. It was his plan to become a ransom for you. He knew your wicked heart. And he went to the cross and he died for you. Who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. But you see this? Right now, if you've got a heart of stone, I am praying that God will open up your eyes. I'm praying that he's going to give you rebirth and that you will see this. Jesus Christ went to the cross. He bled and he died. As John says, he became the propitiation of sin, taking on the wrath of God in his body, in your place. Then, going to the grave, and on the third day, rising again, conquering sin and death, to to fully show that he is God. So that you and I would come to a worship service 2,000 years later and we would say, thank you, Jesus. You are our king. And so that we would know that we have hope. We can hope today, not in ourselves, because we'll let ourselves down, but only in the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight if you do not know Jesus I pray that he is removing the scales from your eyes your eyes and that you would see him clearly for the first time so the last part of this passage here the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him now it's going to seem for a moment here like the focus completely changes but friends, I don't think that it does. If you look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. The world does not know us. Check this out. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The natural person, in verse 14, if you are struggling with the fact that as a follower of Jesus Christ, it seems like you have no relationship with the world, that you're so different from the world, it's because you are. It's because you have experienced rebirth. And the world is still in its natural state that has not experienced the rebirth through the regenerate work of the Holy Spirit and the Father. And because of that, it's like you are a part of two different families. It's like the difference of knowing your brother, your biological brother, and then having a neighbor. You understand things differently. You know things differently. It's not negating the call to love the people that don't know God, but rather it's reminding us 
that we have been born of God, so we're his children. And until your neighbors are born of God, until your friends are born of God, there's always going to be a limitation in your relationship. Until God does a work on my street. It's kind of funny, but I have a neighbor named Jason who lives three houses down. And I was talking to some of my neighbors um, a few weeks back, and I found out that they actually have titles for all the different neighbors, you know? Now, you probably do that too. I mean, I think my wife and I have a few different names that, you know, we try to identify people with that we don't maybe not know very well. I found out that my neighbor, my name for some of my neighbors is Preacher Jason, and then his name is Crazy Jason. But for some of my other neighbors, he's Bad Jason, and I'm Good Jason, you know? Now, I don't necessarily like those titles, but I think what's happening is that our neighbors have identified that there's something a little different. It's not that we work in a different place, you know? It's not that I'm a preacher and he's not a preacher. It's not that we live in a different city. It's not because I'm, you know, Caucasian and he's African-American. No, what's different is that they're seeing that we've got a different father. I am serving God as anybody that has been born of God will. And he's serving the deceiver because he doesn't know God. So we look different. Do you look different than your neighbors? Like, when people see you, do they make a distinction? Or they, do they even know enough about you to make a distinction? Maybe that's a better question to wrestle with. Here's the deal. My wife and I have a heart for our neighbors. That's not a heart that I conjured up in my flesh. Because I'll tell you guys right now that there's nothing in my flesh that has a heart for my neighbors. They put a fence a little bit on your side. You want to go over and take a bat, you know. Like, they do things that, that frustrate you sometimes. But God has given my wife and I a heart for our neighbors. So much so that two years ago, we were on vacation with the Sigmas down in Florida, in Orlando. And I remember I was out on a morning run. And while I was out running, I was listening to my iPod, God birthed in me in that moment a vision to plant a church. The name, the location, the people that we were supposed to reach. But during that time, after I saw that vision, it just didn't feel like it was right. I felt like I kind of went into the desert for a while, not hearing much more about that vision, not seeing much more about it. I believe that that was by the mercy of God. I wasn't ready to plant another church after Matthias. I don't think that Matthias was ready for me to leave because there was a lot of work that needed to be done. But then seven months ago, I was bow hunting with a few of our lot family leaders down in southern Missouri. I was up in a tree stand, which is, by the way, a wonderful place to experience God. If you've never tried it. <laughs> and as I was up there reading a book about children had nothing to do with church planting, God brought that vision back afresh to me there in that tree stand. The name of a church, the location for it to be started, the people that we were supposed to reach, and even in this time, the people that I was supposed to ask to be a part of that leadership team with me to go. 
That was seven months ago. After that time, I continued to pray. I continued to discern. I became before our elders of our church, and I shared with them that vision. They affirmed that vision in my heart in life. And so I want to share with you guys today, if you have not already heard, I shared with the covenant members already, but Heather and I feel like God is calling us to plant a church in Wentzville. We're very, very excited about that. The name of this church is going to be Piney Ridge Church. Now, the first thing that you may think about Wentzville is you'll say, well, isn't Wentzville like, what's that, you know, redneck, blue-collar community out there, west, you know, they... Those people, they work hard. They really love their kids. Most of them are Christians, and there's already lots of churches out there, right? I would agree with a lot of that. But the one thing I would not agree with is this. Well, maybe two things. We're not all rednecks. But the other thing is most of us are. But the other thing that I would say is this. Winsville is not predominantly Christian. Okay? Just in the circle that I live in, in my neighborhood, there's 53 houses. Not, that's not my whole neighborhood. That's just my circle, which is about 200 people. Of the relationships that I've been able to build, of the names of the people that I've gotten to know and I've gotten to meet and experience, of those over 200 people, I have identified five that regularly attend church that know Christ. Now, if you take that and you multiply it by my neighborhood, and then you multiply it by the triangle, which I call the unreached triangle. If you know anything about Winsville, it's Highway 4061, Point Prairie, then to Westmire and Winsville Parkway. It makes up this big triangle. In that triangle, there are 2,000 plus homes, 6,000 plus people. Of those 6,000 people, there's two churches, an African-American church and another smaller Bible church which I believe that these churches are doing great things, but together they comprise about 100 people. You take 6,000 plus and you minus 100, that's a whole lot of people left. We believe that God has called us to reach this community. They don't need another building. They don't need another program. and They, got, they don't need another activity. They got plenty of those. They need a Christ centered church. So we believe that God has called us to plant Piney Ridge Church there in the Piney Ridge School that's right around the corner from our house. It's like a quarter mile, a half mile away. And that church is called to exalt Christ, equip Christians, and engage the community with the gospel love of Jesus Christ. Exalting Christ because in Winsville I'm fearful that many of the idols have become homes and they've become jobs and they've become children and they've become vacations and they've even become religion and the idols need to be stripped away. People that think they're saved and they don't know Jesus. A church that's called to equip Christians because in that community there's many of churches, and I don't want to speak against churches because I believe that God is doing amazing things in many of them, but we need a church that is going to have expository preaching, that is going to look deeply into the Word of God to try to understand what it means. A church that's going to have biblical small groups where people are experiencing life change. And a church that is engaging the community not with just another mass mailer inviting people to come to our event. 
not just another church that's hanging door hangers on people's doors. I'm not saying that marketing is bad, but it's not enough. Christians need to live life with their neighbors. I believe that God is calling me to plant a church like that. If you've ever read Judges chapter 2, there's something that's very significant that happens. Joshua dies after the people have entered into the promised land, and we see that there was a generation that knew God. They knew the stories of the gospel. But then there came a generation that did not know God. And what I believe happened is that Deuteronomy chapter 6 wasn't lived out. That the fathers and the mothers weren't telling their, children's, their children the stories. When mothers and fathers don't tell their children the stories of the gospel, that is how God moves through generations. And in Wentzville, what is starting here as 200 people in my neighborhood a few generations from now will be 600 people. And then it'll be 1,500 people. And then it'll be 10,000 people just coming from my little neighborhood. If God could use us to impact those people, to do what he's been doing in my heart for the last several years, which is teaching me how to love mothers and fathers and to teach them how to share the gospel with their children, I believe that God can move. And I believe that he's calling us to do it now. I believe that he's calling us to do it now. Because this community needs a church today. And the desire to plant this church is burning more brightly than it ever has before. In church planting, if you know anything about it, you always have different struggles. There's always going to be challenges in pastoral ministry. But right now, in terms of what most people would think, our elders and Mark and I, we've reached a point where we've made it into a building. We're not having to not be able to sleep at night because we don't know where our paycheck is going to come from. God has blessed us in a lot of ways. I've got a bigger office than I've ever had before. It's awesome. I've got cool artwork on the walls, you know. It's hard to leave. God is calling us to be sent out of Matthias' lot. And as much as I think I would like to stay, I know that I can't. It's a lot like Jonah, who's called to go to Nineveh. And because he's disobedient, he has to be thrown off of a ship. If I was to disobey at this point, I think I'd be in sin. And I think you'd have to kick me out. <laughs> and I don't want you to kick me out. I want to go. So I'm asking you to pray for me. Pray for my family. Pray for the leaders of this church. And know this. Know this. I'm not leaving Matthias because I'm upset about anything. I'm closer to my best friend, Mark, than I've ever been before. I love him dearly. There is nothing that has entered into our relationship. I love our elders more than I loved them before. I love the vision of Matthias Lot more than I ever have before. And I believe that God is going to do tremendous things through a church that continues to love God and love people. And I'm praying that there are hundreds upon hundreds of people that are affected by the gospel in this church. And every day that that happens, I will rejoice with you. And I ask that when I'm sent out in October, and when God begins to move in this church, that you'll rejoice with us. 
It's not a competition. It's not a game. God has called all of us to be missionaries in our own context. How is he calling you? God is the gospel. He's lavishing love on us. I pray that your eyes will become clear as you see people and as you see the word and as you see him for who he is. Stand up with me for a moment. I'm going to pray. We're going to have a time of worship. I want you guys to know that I love you dearly. And I'm blessed to be able to be here with you tonight, to share this vision with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask God that as we turn our hearts to worship, Father, that you would work. God, that you would lead us in such a way Father, that our worship would be pleasing to you. God, I pray for Matthias Lot. I pray for Piney Ridge. I pray for August Gate, another church that we have the opportunity to send out from this church. God, you've given a little church a lot of big opportunities. I pray that divisiveness will not enter. I pray that pride will not enter. I pray that we will continue to love you and to love people and to love the gospel because it's our only hope. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.